Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk is where we are today. In these series of messages, what we're doing is we're going through the Bible book by book, summarizing each of the books of the Bible so that we can get an understanding of how the Bible hangs together and what is the landscape of the Scriptures. And today, we are up to the prophet Habakkuk. Right after the prophet, writings of the prophet Nahum comes Habakkuk. And here's the key concept for today. Bring your questions humbly to God and be prepared to be amazed. Bring your questions to God. We ask questions by nature. Human beings are inherently inquisitive. We don't always have the answers for the questions that we ask, but we ask anyway. Just this past week, I came across some questions that I don't have answers for. For instance, why is it that when you tell a man there is 400 million stars in the sky, he accepts it without question, but when you paint a bench and put a sign that says wet paint, everybody touches it? to see if it's true. I don't have an answer for that. Why is it that we call it a hamburger when it's made of beef? Why do banks charge you a fee for bouncing a check when they know you don't have the money? Why do we park on a driveway and drive on a parkway? Here's a question. If human beings evolved from monkeys and apes like they say, why do we still have monkeys and apes? I think that's a good question. Well, when we come to the prophet Habakkuk, this is a prophet with questions, more profound than the ones that I put forward. Habakkuk is deeply concerned with what he sees going on around him, and he asks the kinds of questions that often we ask in times of trouble or heartache. Habakkuk asks God, why is this happening? Why don't you step in and change this? Why are you allowing this to continue? Specifically, why do you allow the wicked to go unpunished? That's his question. In fact, the entire book of Habakkuk is a dialogue between the prophet and God. This is a very different kind of prophetic book. There are no speeches for the people to hear in the prophet Habakkuk. There's no call to repentance. There's no prayer that God will save his people. As a matter of fact, Habakkuk, it seems, has come to the point where he doesn't think the people are worth saving. He's upset with the way God is working his work in the universe. And God alone is the audience of Habakkuk's question. So before we consider the text, let's consider the times. Habakkuk operates after the fall of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, to the Babylonians. In 612 B.C., the Babylonian Empire uh, invaded and took over Assyria. And uh, as that kingdom fell, then the Babylonians became the strongest kingdom in the region uh, of that time. Now, what happened during Habakkuk's life is that when Egypt heard that Babylon was on the move and was conquering Assyria. The Egyptians didn't want that to happen. And so they mobilized their army, and a man named Pharaoh Necho uh, mobilized his army and moved his army to come against uh, Babylon to join with the remnants of the Assyrian forces and to battle against Babylon. To do that, he had to travel through Israel. And King Josiah, you remember his name, was on the throne at this time. Habakkuk and Jeremiah the prophet are contemporaries. Jeremiah goes to Josiah and says, Do not 
uh, get in the way of Pharaoh's armies moving up through Israel on their way to Babylon. Just let it happen. But Josiah really can't stomach the idea that the Egyptians are going to be on the side of the Assyrians. And so Josiah takes his armies out to the uh, plain by Megiddo, which we call Armageddon, out to that plain, and he tries to stop the Egyptians while they are on their move. Well, the battle goes badly for Israel, and King Josiah is killed in the struggle. This is all recorded in 2 Kings, and 2 Kings 23 says this, Josiah's servants brought his body in a chariot from Megiddo to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and appointed him and made him king in place of his father. But the record shows that Jehoahaz did evil in the eyes of the Lord. As a matter of fact, every king that follows, that's the little tagline next to their name. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it is during this succession of evil kings when Habakkuk is active. And these rulers, Josiah was trying to bring reform and revival for the worship of, of, of Jehovah in Israel, but these successive kings take the people away from the worship of God. They introduce idolatry once again, and the, the place is seemingly uh, spinning out of control. And Habakkuk looks around and he says, why are you letting this happen? Very little is known about the man except that he is a free thinker. He's, he doesn't challenge the people as much as he challenge, challenges God. He goes right to the top, so to speak. And, and it's important to note that what we don't see in the book of Habakkuk is a case of cosmic whining. But what we do see is a man who comes with two great convictions. God is both all-powerful and totally loving. All-powerful and totally loving. And since that is both true, why is God letting this happen? How is it that he's allowing this kind of uh, movement away from true worship? The book of Habakkuk is only three chapters long. It divides in two sections, but they're not uh, half and half. They're not equally spaced. The first two chapters, uh, the first section is where Habakkuk is questioning God. And his tone is very miserable. His attitude is impatient. He's almost angry with God in the way that he's running the universe. And then when you get to chapter 3, Habakkuk is resting in God. It's a complete turnaround. His tone is happy. He's waiting in patience, calling for mercy, and literally singing to the Lord. If you look at chapter 3, you'll note that chapter 3 is a song. You can tell that by, in the margins of your Bibles, you have a couple of places in chapter 3, the word selah, just the word you also find in the Psalms. That is an indicator, we think, for a musical interlude in this song where the instruments would play. And so it's not really meant to be read in the text as, as you read it. So it's an indicator. This is a song. And maybe Habakkuk wrote it as a poem and it was turned to music, whatever. But it's complete. It's a worship experience in chapter 3. So the question is, what happens between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 that totally changes the prophet's attitude and point of view? That's what we're going to investigate as we go to the text. But it begins with Habakkuk's question, and that is, why does Judah's sin go unpunished? Let's read uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 2 and following. You follow along as I read. This is what it says. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. 
Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. How long, O Lord? How long will you let this go on? Maybe you've prayed prayers like that. Maybe there are prayers that you have prayed for a long period of time looking for the answer. How long until I, I get an answer from my prayer? Praying for that loved one who needs to come to the Lord. How long? Praying for that habit that you need to be released from or praying from that blockage in your life that you need to have cleared away. It seems that Habakkuk has been praying for justice to prevail in his land for a long time and he hasn't seen it happen. But this time, when he prays his prayer, how long, O Lord, he gets a direct answer. And the answer comes starting in verse 5. God is speaking. He says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. Go down to verse 10. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. God answers Habakkuk's prayer. Habakkuk's complaint to him. And he says, Habakkuk, I am watching. I am involved. I do care. And I am going to send an ordained answer to your prayers. It's coming your way, and it's going to get there in your lifetime. I'm going to mobilize the Babylonian army against Judah, and they will be my arm of punishment against the people in the city of Jerusalem. Now, when Habakkuk hears that, you can almost sense an audible gasp from Habakkuk. It's like, what? The Babylonians? They're worse than we are. How can you use them to punish us? See, now he has a different objection. Now his objection is, what are you doing? Why would you use them as your instrument of justice when they are really bad? Right? So in chapter 1, verse 13, we pick that up. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? See, Habakkuk knows that the Babylonian society is a pagan evil society filled with idolatry. And he knows that the way they make war is what we would call today a scorched earth policy. In other words, total destruction. When they move through an area, they destroy to the point of spoiling the wells, chopping down the trees, tearing down the houses, uh, ruining the crops, not to mention killing and imprisoning all the people. It is total killed, corrupted, or destroyed when they go through. Nothing is left standing. That's interesting to note, a little sidelight, that 800 years prior to this, it was the Israelites who were the arm of God's punishment against the pagan Canaanites. God had enough of, the, of the, the moral filth that was going on in Canaan and the Israelites were the ones who were brought into the land to exact judgment just like the Babylonians will do on Judah in this situation. But in that case, God specifically said, listen, when you go into the land, don't chop down the trees. 
because the trees are not your enemy. I'm exacting judgment on the sins of the people, not the trees. In fact, in Deuteronomy 20, we read this. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them. Do not cut them down. Are the trees of the field people that you should besiege them? The trees belong to God. The trees are the silent witness to the, the sins of the people, so to speak, uh, around. And they're not your enemies. But the Babylonians are total scor scorched earth policy of warfare. And so Habakkuk now has two things that he's objecting about to God's plan. Number one, you're using people that are worse than us to punish us. I don't get that. Number two, there are still some good people in the land, me being one of them, all right? And the Babylonians are not going to tell a difference between the good or the bad. So you're, the good, we're, you're looking at total annihilation of, the, of your people if Babylon is the instrument you use. And so ba uh, Habakkuk needs an answer now to all these questions. And as we begin chapter 2, he positions himself to listen for the answer. He says this, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. And the answer comes right away. Verse 3, Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that the herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end, and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. Part of Habakkuk's complaint is that the Babylonians will come in and they'll just kill us all. They won't discriminate between good or bad, righteous, faithful, or unrighteous and unfaithful. And God says in his answer to Habakkuk, I can discriminate. I can see who's righteous and who's faithful and who's not. And the righteous will live by their faith. Give this message to runners. Send them throughout the land as heralds. Let them know that they must persist in their faith because God is paying attention and that those who keep faith will survive and those who do not will not survive. That quote is used again in the New Testament. Paul says the righteous will live by his faith. And the message is exactly the same. It is our ongoing faithfulness, our perseverant faithfulness that allows us to live in the Lord and to have life everlasting. And so the objection is, is answered by God. But the other objection is that these people are a terrible people. You're using this evil people to punish your own. And basically, God's answer to Habakkuk regarding that is this. I can use any tool in my tool shed. I can do what I want. But I'll promise you this, Habakkuk. Babylon will also be punished for their sins. In chapter 2, verse 8, he's talking to Babylon. And this is what he says. Because you have plundered many nations, the peoples who are left will plunder you. For you have shed man's blood, you have destroyed lands and cities, and everyone in them. And then, for the rest of chapter 2, God pronounces woes against Babylon. Remember, in the Bible, when you read the word woe, you're reading a curse. 
And so he's pronouncing curses against Babylon. Woe to him who builds his realm by unjust gain. That's verse 9. Go to verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. Verse 19. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to a lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver, but there is no breath in it. So God is saying it's because of their violence, because of their evil, because of their immorality, because of their, uh, because of their uh, idolatry, the Babylonians too will experience punishment. A bitter harvest will come from these kinds of seeds that they sow. And that principle of reaping and sowing is still in force, and it's in force in our lives as well. What you reap, you sow. There's a consequence. And sometimes I know that as believers in Jesus Christ, we, we may be wandering away from what we know is right and pure and, and the will of the Lord, and we don't see immediate consequence. And we begin to believe that we're getting away with something. There is no consequence in, in, ter in terms of my own sinful rebellion. And Habakkuk shows us that God keeps his own time, and that consequence do come. But make no mistake, a backslidden believer who's out of step with the will of God. We may not feel that there's discipline in our life immediately, but we are certainly missing the blessing and the joy that God would have given the person who's walking in the center of His will. And sometimes we're so out of touch with the will of God, we don't even sense that we're experiencing that punishment. But sin has closed the door of blessing because that principle of reaping and sowing is still in force. Babylon will be punished. So by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 20, this is what we read. God is still speaking, and he says this, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The questions have been asked. The answers have been given. Now it's time to be quiet. Especially you, Habakkuk. It's time to be quiet. Just wait. Time to be silent. And that's exactly what happens between chapters 2 and 3 that changes the heart of the prophet. He waits humbly and quietly before the Lord. God is saying in that silence, I have everything in hand, sir, and I have answered all your questions. If some of my answers are not to your satisfaction, that's just hard cheese. That's just the way it is because I'm running the universe, not you. And so the puzzled prophet becomes the thinking prophet who becomes the waiting prophet, who eventually becomes the wise prophet. As he listens, as to just thinks about the Lord, he remembers that God does indeed intervene on the side of righteousness. He calls to mind the events of the history of God's relationship with his people and the way that he protected them and the way that he cared for them and sometimes disciplined them in order to bring them to the place of blessing. And by the time we hear his voice again in chapter 3, a new tone emerges from the prophet. It's a tone of praise. It's a tone of surrender. It's a tone of humility where before he was combative with God, but here now he's surrendered before him. In chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Lord, Habakkuk is speaking, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. It's a good prayer to pray. Renew them in our day. 
Renew your deeds in our time. Make them known to us. But in wrath, remember mercy. See, Habakkuk now is convinced the punishment is coming. And I know it's going to come. And I know this discipline is from God's own hand. So in wrath, remember mercy. There are times as you walk with the Lord, believer in Jesus Christ, when you will account, uh, encounter God's discipline. We are not perfect people and we make mistakes and we, and we commit sin and, and there is rebellion in our hearts and, ta- and God every once in a while will, will, will send something to get us back on track. He wants our lives to be continually growing freer and freer from the pollution of our society. And He grants us in that process what I'll call conscience nudges. It's a little nudge from the Holy Spirit. And a little nudge that He says, He reminds you, well, maybe I ought not to be doing this anymore. Or maybe I ought not to be going here anymore since I belong to Christ now. Maybe I ought not to be saying this anymore. Or I, may, I ought not to be watching this and allowing this to get in my brain anymore. Conscience nudges. If you consistently push those nudges away, if you refuse to take that thought to the Lord in prayer for, for a con- confirmation from His Spirit, if you refuse to look into the Word for teaching and guidance in life, if you say, listen, that's just the way I am and that's what I like to do, that's the end of it. God will discipline as a sign of His love. And always in wrath remember mercy. There's always that balance of of wrath and mercy. For the punishment that God sends His children is not for our destruction, it's for our correction. And the same is true with the nation of Israel. It is for their correction. And Habakkuk rightly understands wrath is coming, but still God is merciful. He has the heart of mercy. And all of this is eventually for our blessing. And so, the rest of the chapter is his poetic allusion to the way that God has worked faithfully in the past. He reminds himself of the plagues and the escape from Egypt. He reminds himself of the battle against the Gibeonites when the sun stood still and God was able to do that. And he says, therefore, based on the evidence of God's past faithfulness, even in hard times, I'm going to trust that God will be faithful for the future. Thus, there has been grace in the past, but there's future grace coming as well. And he places his trust in that, and he expresses that trust near the end of chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there is no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. See, Habakkuk has come to the place that we all must come to at some point to say, you know what? There is a God. He is all-powerful. He is all-loving. And He is not me. I can't run the universe. I have to trust the one who does. And so he shows us what it's like to ask questions when you're in a situation that kind of rocks you. Why did God allow this struggle? Why did God allow this heartache? And he shows us that God does not mind honest questions. That's one of the lessons we get from the book of Habakkuk, that God does not mind when his faithful followers asks him questions. Because a faith that is afraid to ask questions is not faith. It is wishful thinking. And you are, bless you, by the way. If you don't say that in church, where are you going to say it, right? Okay, cut that from the tape for the radio, okay? What I'm getting at, though, is 
is you are not called to be a people of wishful thinking. That is not what we're in here. We are called to be a people of faith. And so we take our answers to the right place and we present those, uh, our questions to the right place. We present those questions to the Lord and God is willing to spend time to answer our questions. However, honest questioners must be willing to listen and be quiet before the Lord and humbly receive the answer. It may take time. It may take study. It may take work and prayer and patience. But always Always it includes this truth. Regardless of how things seem, God is always in control. It may seem like the sky is falling and all is lost, but with God on our side, it means things are not the way they seem. That's the message. But remember, as we receive that message, God Almighty does not need to explain Himself to us. That's where faith comes in. The righteous will live by faith. Faith reminds us that we may not fully grasp God's design and plan. Faith gives us hope that one day maybe we will when we're with Him face to face. But here is what faith believes in the meantime. Faith believes that God is too wise to make a mistake. The events of your life are not accidents, okay? We, don't, don't, we just don't see it all. Imagine your life like a parade. And you're watching the parade through the lens of a rolled-up newspaper. All you see is that little piece right in front of you. That's how you see the parade of life. But God sees the whole parade. And in His wisdom, knowing the end from the beginning, He can be trusted. He's too wise to make a mistake. Secondly, faith believes that God is too kind to be cruel. He's not malicious. He's not out there just to get a pound of flesh. Whatever He does, He does out of kindness and goodness. Thirdly, faith believes that God will always do His best for us, but will always be in His timing. That's where Habakkuk 2.3 is such a great verse. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. In your faith journey, patience is called for. Faith believes, number four, that you can rest easy and you can trust the heart of God. There's a lot of stuff that happens that I don't understand. But I do know this, that God loves to be merciful to his people. He delights in mercy. He has a heart of mercy. And I believe that the one who is perfectly loving, perfectly wise, and perfectly pow powerful, I believe that's the being that I can trust rather than myself. That's what faith believes. And so if you can't... If you can't understand God's methods from time to time, trust his heart because the righteous will live by faith.